Good morning again. Welcome to those of you who are visiting us today. You are joining us uh, 32 weeks into this sermon series. We started in September with telling the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end. We started with Genesis at the beginning of September. And uh, today we have caught up to the resurrection, which I'm very excited to talk about. And then we'll continue on through Acts in May and end with Revelation. So if you're interested in what you've missed, you can find our sermons online or you can listen to the podcast. But more importantly, if you want to see how the whole story ends, you can come back with us through the rest of this series. But before we get to the resurrection, I have to get us all on the same page of where we've been so far. I'm going to try and do it efficiently because we've covered a lot. Uh, What we've been saying throughout this sermon series is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. Those are the four things you remember. You can tell because they all start with the same letter. Place, people, purpose, presence. Those are the parts of God's plan. So God made the world, and he put human beings in it. And the Bible says he made us for a particular function, that he designed us to rule over this world on his behalf. That's what we're made for. And then he came down to live with us on the seventh day, and that was the goal. That was the design that God wanted all along for us. The problem is that human beings messed it up. We aren't actually very good at obeying God's design, or we, we would be good at it if we wanted to be, but we don't want to follow God. We want to build our own kingdoms. And so the first humans messed it up, and their kids messed it up, and their kids messed it up, and it just kept getting worse and worse until God launched a plan to restore humanity back to his design. And that plan involved choosing one particular group of people, the Israelites, and giving them one particular place to live, the land of Israel. And he came down to live with them in the temple, and he gave them a purpose. And their purpose was to live in God's presence in a way that would show the world who God is and what he wants for his people. And so God gave them strict rules, they are extensive rules, 613 guidelines of how to live out his nature, his, how to show the world who he is in their culture. And we call that the law of Moses. And so this was the whole point, that Israel would be a light to the world, would be a nation of priests, so the whole world could look at Israel and see who God is and what he wants for his people. Unfortunately, the Israelites weren't any better at following God than the rest of us. And so they rebelled against God and rebelled against God and rebelled against God. And it got so bad that at one point, God said, the only way I can reveal who I am and what I want for humanity through this kingdom is to say, not that. Whoever I am, whatever I want, it's, uh, whatever I want for humanity, it's not what is happening in Israel. And so at that point, he declared the covenant broken, and he sent the people into exile to demonstrate to the world, this is not what I want. I want something greater than this. So the Israelites went into exile. Some of them got to come back about 70 years later, and they built a new temple, but the exile didn't end because God didn't return to that temple. They didn't get, the rest of the Jews didn't return to the promised land. They didn't get to rule over the promised land. They didn't get to enforce law of Moses. None of the important parts of the plan got reestablished. And so the Jews set to work on trying to get, every, get everything on track again by their own effort. And so what they did was they said, all right, the problem, obviously, is the Gentiles. They messed it up for us. So no Gentiles, the Gentiles aren't going to help us build the temple. They're certainly not going to be allowed in the temple. We'll kick them out of Jerusalem, and we will not 
have any dealings with Gentiles or lawbreakers. We're just going to huddle in here by ourselves and keep the law as meticulously as we can to make sure that nobody messes it up. And we'll just keep everybody at an arm's length. Which, as you may recognize, is the opposite of the plan, which was for them to be a light to the nations. And so they try this way of building God's kingdom for about 500 years, and it doesn't work. And then suddenly, a man appears on the scene named Jesus. And we find out that God has sent Jesus to call Israel back to the plan, to call Israel back to God's design for humanity. And that's the story that we've been telling for the last six weeks or so. And so as we get ready for the portion of the story that we're in today, I'm going to help you get your bearings in this story. Each week, we look at these four kind of coordinates that help you understand where you are in a Bible story if you're reading it with the plan in mind. You look for who is the story about, where is their home, how can they meet with God, and what did God tell them to do? Normally, we have a special passage that we read for this, but I'm just going to catch you up on what we've been saying about Jesus, okay? So at this point in the story, the story of the Bible is about Jesus and the Jews. It is still about the Jews because the Jews are still God's people, and God is committed to saving the world through the Jews. So he's going to save them through the Jews or not at all, because God keeps his word. And he has sent Jesus to lead them and to, to return the Jews to God's plan so that through them he can save the world. So Jesus is designated by God as their leader and as the one who's going to restore the plan through Israel. Where is their home? Their home right now is called Galilee and Judea. Those are two Roman provinces. And that reminds us that the Israelites are not in charge right now. They have been conquered by the Romans, and the Romans can carve their territory up however they want, and fairly arbitrarily, they've carved it into Judea and Galilee, and there's a, a king over Galilee, and there's a Roman governor over Judea. But that is an, the presence of Romans in the Promised Land is an ever-present reminder that the people are in exile. Now, a very important question that all the Jews would have been asking at this time is, how can they meet with God? Their understanding is that the place you meet with God is the temple. And most of them are aware, they've been talking about the fact that God hasn't returned to this new temple. The prophets talk about that, but they're waiting for a day when God will return. And they know that the place God will return is to his temple. So unfortunately, most of them miss the fact that God's presence actually returned to earth in Jesus. There's a moment when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him. And God's spirit visibly, tangibly returned to earth. And so actually, if you want to meet God, the place where you'll meet God now is in Jesus. Which is a part of the tragic irony of the fact that the Jews are going to execute Jesus in order to protect what they think is the real temple. And that leads us to the purpose. What did God tell Jesus to do? Jesus' mission is to restore the kingdom of God to earth. Which, that is the way that Jesus, when he says, the, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That's his way of saying that God is ready to restore the plan to the world. God is going to become king again. And so God is ready to end the exile and to move things forward so Israel better get on board. Because the Israelites, the Jews, have been going the wrong way. And that's why Jesus says, repent. He's not just talking to individual people when he says that. He's talking to a whole nation that has been on the wrong path of following God. And he says, you need to get off this path because it leads to destruction, which it ultimately did. 
40 years later, the Romans destroyed them because they were on this path of constantly fighting against the Romans to protect their law. He said, instead, to avoid destruction, you need to follow my way. And then he went around forgiving people and uh, healing people and restoring people into the community of God and creating this family of people who are committed to living out the mission of Israel according to Jesus' teachings, according to what Jesus said was the right way to obey God and to live out his plan. And after three years of this, Jesus went to Jerusalem to force the Jews to make a choice. So he goes, he rides into the city on a donkey, declaring himself to be the Messiah, and he goes to the temple and he says, this whole thing is wrong. This whole system you've built is wrong. This is not what God calls us to do. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to be lights to the world. And so he forces the Jews to make a choice. And the Jewish leaders do not take kindly to this challenge. And so when they can't refute him in, in public debates, they conspire to have him executed. And they, they arrest him in the middle of the night, and they charge him with treason against the temple, and they convict him, and they hand him over to the Romans. And the, they push the Romans to execute him, and, and Pontius Pilate, he stands Jesus up to the crowds, and he basically gives the Jewish crowds of Israel the choice. Are you going to uh, protect this man? Are you going to defend this man? Or are you going to tell me to kill him? And the crowds rejected Jesus because they rejected what he said about what it meant to be God's people. And that's where we left off the story last week. So today, on Easter, we are talking about the climax of the story, not just the story of Jesus, but the entire story of the Bible. How is this going to end? Now, if you're here, you probably know how this story goes, but I'm kind of going to pretend that you don't, because if you hadn't heard this story for a long time, you would be surprised at how it goes. The people who witnessed it were certainly surprised. So all of this buildup, this story of empires and towers and floods and, and fiery mountains and God's finger carving laws, and all these, these huge stories have boiled down to this confrontation of Jesus going to the cross. So let's see what happens. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This scene is a, is a perversion of the expectations of Israel for their Messiah. They expected their Messiah to conquer the nations and to have the rulers of the world at their feet cowering and, and proclaiming the Messiah to be king of the Jews. Psalm 2 promised this. And instead, when Jesus comes into his kingdom, they are doing it in mockery of him. But maybe he's just waiting for the best moment. Right? Maybe he's just making it more dramatic. See, they crucify him, but it takes a long time. It takes days for a person to die when they've been crucified. So it's, even when he's on the cross, the story's not necessarily over. And there are certainly some people there who, whether they're doing this genuinely or not, are, are waiting to see what God's going to do. It says, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it in a, on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, he said. 
This is a test, this moment. And the terms of the test for anyone watching is that if God lets this man die, then he is not the Messiah. Because God would not allow his Messiah to be humiliated and killed. We talked about this in our sunrise service this morning, that a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. And so for them, this is the test. If he dies, he's not the Messiah. So naturally, with 31 weeks invested into this, and thousands of years for the Jews invested into this story, clearly he's not going to die. Except, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So the first part of the story is that Jesus confronted the powers in Jerusalem and let them humiliate and execute him. And every person in the city would have been convinced in that moment that Jesus was not the Messiah because he's dead. And he died without finishing the job. He died without doing any of the things that the Messiah was supposed to accomplish. And if Jesus, if that was where the story ended, then that would be what we think of Jesus today. Another in a long list of failed messiahs who were killed by the Romans. But the story doesn't end there. Because a couple days later, some of Jesus' followers, some women, go to pay respect to his body, and they find the tomb open and empty. And at first they assume that the body was stolen, but then these two men appear who look rather like angels and tell them that Jesus is alive. And then elsewhere, there are these two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem to go to the town of Emmaus, and they run into this guy on the road, and they start talking to him about how disappointed they are that Jesus turned out not to be the Messiah, because they really thought he was. And this guy says, no, you don't get it. That is exactly what was supposed to happen to the Messiah. And they talk about this as they walk. And then at one point, they stop on the road to have a meal. And as they're eating, this man breaks a piece of bread. And suddenly they realize it's Jesus. And then he disappears. And then later that day, all the disciples are gathered together. And they're talking about these things and trying to make sense of what on earth is going on. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, which makes sense, right? Because he appeared in a locked room uh, without going through the door, right? Normal people don't do that. He also disappeared from, in, from right in front of the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they, he had been walking with them the whole time, but they didn't quite recognize him. Like, this doesn't sound like a normal person. It sounds like a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they asked him, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Odd turn for this story. He died. He was killed by the Romans. But then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and ate some fish. You ever wondered about that fish? It's a weird detail. He ate some broiled fish. Why do we care about the fish? I'm going to argue today that the fish is there to support the most important thing for us to learn in the story of the resurrection. In fact, I almost titled this sermon, The Fish. But I I thought that was a little underwhelming. But the fish is a big deal. 
when we ask, why the fish? It's because it helps us to answer the bigger question that you may not be asking. The much bigger question, the most important question, which is, why does any of this matter? Have you asked that question before? Why does the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead matter? He's not the only one. He is the sixth person in the Bible to rise from the dead. And in fact, the, the most recent one, Lazarus, was in the grave longer than Jesus was. Nobody thought the world changed when Lazarus came out of the grave. Nobody thought the world changed when the Shunammite woman's son came back to life. Or Most of them, we don't even know their names. Why does the death and resurrection of one person matter? The normal way that we answer that question is with uh, logical arguments, with, with philosophical arguments, with theories. When you go to seminary and you study this stuff, they call them theories of atonement. They are uh, logical arguments to explain why the death and resurrection of Jesus matters to us. And you have to memorize them, you get tested on them. Um, I'm not, let's see, um, moral, moral influence, ransom, substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, and Christus victor. Those are the ones I learned. They're all different arguments about why G this matters. And usually when we're presenting the gospel to someone, what we end up having to do is that's where this question really comes up. And so you may have used a, a, a atonement theory if you've used the Roman's road or the wordless book. Because we end up telling people not just Jesus died and rose from the dead, but we have to convince them why it matters. And it usually goes something along the line of, well, you've sinned, and because you've sinned, it doesn't matter how little the thing is, you deserve to die. But there's a loophole that if one innocent person dies, then anybody who's guilty that trusts in his, that he died, who believes that he died, um, they get off free. And we have to convince people that that's how the world works, that that's how God works. And we have to make that logic obvious. And I find that that's a harder sell to, make, to convince people in their souls that that's the way God works, especially since that's not how our legal system works. Like if you, we had a judge who said, I'll let everybody off a death row if one innocent person will die for them. Like it's a hard sell to convince people that that's the way the universe works. Another struggle that we have with this is that the Bible doesn't give us one clear explanation of why the death of Jesus and the resurrection matters. It actually gives us a whole bunch. It talks about the resurrection of Jesus in a whole bunch of different ways, all these different images. That's why there's so many theories of atonement. Why does the Bible use all these different images and all these different arguments? Well, it's because the Bible doesn't give us this, this cosmic law that we have to accept in order to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection matters to us. It gives us a story. And if you track with the story, it reveals why the resurrection of Jesus matters. Because the Bible tells the story of Jesus the way you tell a joke. And the resurrection is the punchline. Now, I don't mean anything disrespectful by that, by that. Let me explain. I'll give you an example, okay? Not claiming this is the greatest joke in the world, but it works for, for example, okay? So, the Pope is in the Vatican, as he often is. And his assistant runs in. He says, Holy Father, Holy Father, terrible news, horrible news, calamitous news. Um, our, our, our Lord and Savior is, has returned, and he's on the phone for you. And the Pope says, My son, our Lord has returned? Wait, this is excellent news. This is amazing news. This is the best news there could ever be. Why would you call this bad news? And his assistant says, Because, Holy Father, he's calling from Salt Lake City. 
Now, to the degree that that's funny, it's because the punchline packs all this information that you suddenly realize and your brain works it back through the story and that realization of how the punchline explains the story, that makes you laugh. If I tell you the story straight, it is not even remotely funny or even interesting. Let me try it. So Jesus returned to Salt Lake City because it turns out the Mormons were right after all and then he called the Pope and the Pope was disappointed. Not funny, right? But the punchline, it packs the information in, and then you suddenly realize and read it back through the story. That's the way the Bible tells the story of Jesus. You're not expecting what happens, but because you tell the story, you say, great news, wonderful news, the best news ever. Jesus was sent here by God, and he preached the gospel to the Jews, and they rejected him, and they, and he, and they turned him over to the Romans, and the Romans killed him. You say, good news? Why would you call that good news? That's horrible news. That's the worst news ever. You say, ah, but he rose from the dead and he ate some fish. Okay, now we have to explain the fish thing. What is the fish thing all about? Well, it helps us distinguish between Jesus' resurrection and all those other resurrections. Because Jesus, the first thing that is very clear to his followers is that Jesus is not in a normal state of existence, right? He goes through doors. They can't always recognize him. So they think ghost. But he shows them his wounds and he eats the fish and that proves to them, not ghost, alive, but not normal alive, some other kind of alive. And the Jews have a category for this. So we actually have the testimony of one of the men who was in that room telling us what they saw. John, in the the opening of his first letter in the Bible, it says, we proclaim, this to, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and he was revealed, and then he was revealed to us. That phrase, eternal life, that is a key phrase that he's using to describe what he saw in Jesus. Eternal life in Greek and in Hebrew, it actually means life of the age. It's not just a different quantity of life, it is a different quality of life. It's a different kind of life. It's the kind of life that you get in God's age. And so what John is telling us is that the fish proved that Jesus was not a ghost he had received a new kind of life called eternal life. So his resurrection is different from all those other resurrections. But why does that matter? Well, now we have to figure out what eternal life means. So let's rewind the story. We're going to go back to the very first place that the phrase eternal life is used. It's in Genesis 3. Telling the story of Adam and Eve and that original design that God had. And the first time when everything was working perfectly, when the people were in their place fulfilling their purpose in his presence, the result was eternal life. After Adam and Eve broke the commands, God says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Those words, live forever, those are those same words, the life of the age. And it's the first time we hear about this eternal life that Adam and Eve had access to when the design of the world was properly working. 
So it seems to be that when all the pieces of God's plan are working, that it is the sum is greater than the parts and that human beings have this thing called eternal life. And so when God speaks to the Israelites about what it will be like when they finally get their act together and when God finally gets his design working on earth, you'll notice, I'm going to read you a passage from Ezekiel, you'll notice that this passage includes all four of the parts of the plan and wrapped up in the middle of it is this idea of eternal life. In Ezekiel it says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. It's place. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. Purpose. They will be my people and I will be their God. People. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. Presence. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And here's how it ends. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. The nations will know, because the goal of this whole thing of working through Israel is so that the nations will know. So as God is promising them that everything's going to get put back together, entwined in the middle is this idea that when everything's put back together, there will be eternal life. And this is why the tradition among the Jews grew up that, that at the culmination of all things, there would be this thing called the resurrection of the dead, which is not a concept, but a, an event that would happen when all of God's people would be resurrected to live this new eternal life with God. So eternal life is the sign that the mission of the Messiah is accomplished and the plan is restored. When all the pieces are put back together, then eternal life comes. And when you understand that, you can start to understand the punchline. The punchline is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, eternal life has already come. Right in the middle of this world, right in the middle of this age, without the, without the, the military defeat of the Roman Empire, all these big things that people are expecting, in what Jesus did, somehow things have been set right so that eternal life is here. And once you realize eternal life is available and present, then you start to work back and fill in the gaps, understanding, just like the punchline, you can work out exactly what all of this means, simply from the fact that Jesus is alive. Because first of all, if Jesus is alive, then the plan is already restored, and the resurrection of the dead has begun. This hope that we have in something that will happen in the future, it's already started 2,000 years ago. This is what the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Remember, that's not a concept. That's an event that has already started. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, so everyone belongs to, who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. The resurrection of Jesus is a down payment on eternal life. We know it's coming because we've already seen it start in Jesus. It's revealed to the world through the resurrection that whatever Jesus did worked. The plan has been restored. 
And so if Jesus is alive, if that's what resurrection means and Jesus is alive, then as we continue to work out the logic, that means that he really is the Messiah, the king of Israel and the world. You wouldn't think he was the king because he didn't get a crown of gold, he got a crown of thorns, and he didn't get he got beaten by soldiers instead of bowed down to, and his throne was being nailed to a cross. And yet when God raised him from the dead, he said, that is my king. That is what my king looks like. That is what my king does. So like it or not, agree with him or not, if Jesus is alive, you have to accept that Jesus is king. It can't be any other way. He can't be alive and not the Messiah. This is what Peter tells the people of Israel on Pentecost. 50 days later, he's talking to the same crowds that called for Jesus to be executed. There are probably people in the crowd who watched him die. And he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, tell all, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. If Jesus is alive, then he is king. He must be. The only reason he would be alive. And if he is alive, and if he is king, then what that also means is he must have been right about what it means to follow God. Because remember, Jesus spent his whole ministry in this controversy with the Jewish leaders about what it looks like to follow God. And the Jewish leaders were saying, no, we need to stay away from Gentiles as much as we can, and, and we're going to keep the law as meticulous as we can. We're going to stay as far away from people who break the law as we can. And if anybody tries to mess with us, we will fight them to the death. And Jesus says, that is not what God's kingdom is about. And that was their whole, their whole confrontation. And so the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah who would fight to the death for the law. And Jesus died for the world. And as you think about the way Jesus died, also think back to what Jesus taught about what it looks like to follow God, to obey God and be part of his plan. He said, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you see how that lines up with exactly what Jesus did in his confrontation with the leaders in Jerusalem? When we covered the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about how a lot of people will try and dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as exaggeration or as something that's just for saints or pastors or missionaries. But if, if the Sermon on the Mount is not realistic, if it isn't meant to be taken literally, if it's just an exaggeration, then uh, look at the way Jesus went to the cross and tell me he didn't mean that sermon. If Jesus is alive, then that means he died the right way and for the right reasons. And that means that what Jesus says about what it looks like to follow God is true. It must be or he wouldn't be alive. I expected it to be a little quiet here because Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount has some pretty severe commands. Just the ones I listed there are hard enough. And as we realize Jesus is right, well then I am in trouble. I was a lot more comfortable with what the Jewish leaders said it looked like to follow God. I can hunker down and just follow a list of rules and ignore everybody else. 
but we're not done with talking about what the death and resurrection of Jesus means. Because remember, as we talked about this, the biggest obstacle to Israel being restored has been the fact that they broke the covenant. That in full view of the world, when they were supposed to be following God, they set a terrible example of what it means to follow God, and they rebelled against him, and God had to publicly say, whatever I want for my world, this is not it. And if God brings them back without dealing with what they have done, then he basically tells the world, it doesn't actually matter what you do. You You can represent me however you want. So the fact that Israel has broken the covenant and rebelled against God is an obstacle to the plan being restored. That's what's been holding everything up for 500 years. So if the plan is back on track, then what that must mean is that the failure of Israel has been dealt with. So if Jesus is alive, then he must have freed Israel from their sin. If you've ever struggled with why the death and resurrection of Jesus matters for you, and you've struggled with the logical arguments that we have used to explain that, I'm going to ask you to not focus on that. There are important things to delve into as we talk about why Jesus died and and why his resurrection matters, but the reason why we know for sure that it changes our state is because Jesus is alive. When God brought Jesus back, it proved that the job was done. If If our sins hadn't been dealt with, then the resurrection would not have started. Paul talks about this in Galatians. And I don't think that the, this is, this is just personally the way I, I see inspiration of scripture. I don't see evidence in the, in the letters that the Holy Spirit like revealed cosmic law to Paul that other people hadn't seen. I think the Holy Spirit guided Paul as he worked out the logical implications of the resurrection. And so he says, if Jesus is alive, then Israel's sins must be dealt with. And what did he do to deal with them? Well, he died on the cross. And so Paul can then say something like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. The curse that Israel deserved because they broke the covenant that was part of the covenant they signed, it must have been dealt with or Jesus wouldn't be alive. And so we trust that the resurrection changes our status before God and changes Israel's status before God because Jesus is alive and his life changes everything. If he's alive, then forgiveness is possible. Plain and simple. And I'm sure we'll all be amazed and dazzled when we get to heaven and are able to see fully exactly how and why it works that way. It'll be amazing to see the intricacies of God's plan. On this side, we trust. He's alive. This is what Jesus' life must mean. There is forgiveness for us. And that, through that forgiveness, his life becomes available to us. Now, there's one last part of the plan that, uh, of all of this that must be true if Jesus is alive. And this is where, for me, I get really excited about telling this story because um, this is when we find out that the story will be a weird way of saying it. I didn't practice it this way. The story is, is about the story. Here's what I mean. If Jesus is alive and the plan is fulfilled, then Jesus must have fulfilled the mission to bring light to the Gentiles. Because the job isn't done for Israel until they have made it possible for the world to look at them and see who God is and see what he wants for his people. And the problem is that Israel has been failing at this over and over again. No matter what they do, no matter what path they try, no matter how hard they fight, they, do, they cannot seem to get it to where people can look at them and see God. There's a really powerful scripture in Isaiah that describes this struggle that they have. 
It says, as a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child, we writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. Their mission was to represent God to the world, and, and they couldn't do it. But here's the amazing thing that happens. Jesus comes along towards the close of their story and he goes to these people and he tells them exactly what it looks like to follow God and exactly what God wants from his people. And he lives that out in their presence to the letter and he dies on their behalf and then he's raised to life. And now what we find out is that Jesus has completed that story because instead of looking just at Israel and their struggles, we look at Jesus and his victory and we look at him to see who God is and what he wants for his people. In the person of Jesus, the mission of Israel is fulfilled. And this was always the plan. In, in Romans, Paul says, uh, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This is where a really important shift happens in the Bible. Instead of talking about the law, we start talking about faith. Because for the Jews, the mission was follow the law to reveal God to the world. And when Jesus is resurrected, the mission changes. It becomes trust in Jesus and what he did to reveal the nature of God and the mission of humanity to the world. Instead of being the people who reveal God's plan to the world, we are the people who point to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who accomplished the mission. So if you want to know who God is and what he wants for his people, look at the cross. Look to Jesus. Our mission changes from being the representatives of God in what we do to pointing to the representative of God in what we do. A few verses later, Paul says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When it says believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that doesn't mean you just believe a historical fact that a heart that stopped pumping started pumping again. It means that you believe that Jesus came back to life and everything that that resurrection means. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from, to, from the dead is to believe that he has fulfilled God's plan for the world. It's to believe that he is the Messiah. It's to believe that he was right about what it means to follow God. It means to believe that he really did atone for our sins and deal with our failures before God. And it means to believe that he has set the example that all nations can follow. It means a whole life engagement in the message of Jesus and what he did when he died on the cross on our behalf. Amen? As we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what next steps God may be putting in front of you. We believe as a church that every time you hear the gospel preached, you have an opportunity to respond. You've seen some people already respond to the gospel by getting baptized today, and that was wonderful. And, and I don't know what step God has put in front of you, but we have a few that, we, uh, that happen a lot and we'd like to prepare you for. Number one, that if you haven't given your life to Jesus, then I can tell you God is putting that on your heart today. If you have not yet given your life over to Jesus, he is always putting that on your heart. And we would love to have you commit your life to Jesus to respond to that message and to take on the new life that he offers to his people. If you'd like to do that today, you can come down as we sing the final song. You can talk to one of our ministers after church. If you're online, we'd love for you to get in touch with the church office or talk to a Christian that you know and trust. 
But today is always the best day to give your life to Jesus. But giving your life to Jesus isn't just a solitary thing. It's about being part of a family that Jesus makes that goes through this life together. And so if, if you've given your life to Jesus, then a next step might be to join a small group or a service team. Our small groups are groups that gather together to study and to pray for each other and to, to get, invest in each other's lives. And our service teams get together to serve the church or to serve our community in different ways. If you're interested in joining one of those, we encourage you to check the box on your a connect card. Finally, if you want to be part of a local family that is seeking to live out the design of God in this place, that is seeking to point people toward Jesus by the way we live, by the way we love each other, that is who this congregation is seeking to be. And we would love to have you join with us. If you'd like to find out more, you can check the box on your Connect card to attend a Connect class where we get together after church, we have some food, and we talk about who this church is and uh, what we do and how you can be a part of it. Now, those are just some of the things God may be putting on your heart. There could be lots of other things that I know nothing about that he's calling you to consider. And I would encourage you, as we stand and sing our final song, to be open to what Jesus is putting on your heart. Let's stand and sing.